If you have your Bible, you turn to Isaiah chapter 59. We've pushed Paul's on the Masterclass series. I'm going to spend the next few weeks uh, kind of giving a reset to church. If you don't remember, you remember about two years ago, two and a half years ago, this little thing called COVID happened, right? So COVID kind of pushed Paul's on everything, on travel, on sports, on school, and in many ways, even the church. And so our philosophy coming out of COVID was to slowly integrate things back in, not to just over-consume or over-pressure, overburden our staff, our team, our volunteers, and our, and our church. And so we're at a point now where we want to start uh, relaunching some of our ministries, but really share who we are. And so our vision here is awakening and empowering you to live and love like Jesus. That means our job is we want to see you awaken. I can't make you get saved. I can't preach good enough for you to get saved. You have to be awakened by the Holy Spirit himself to salvation. But it can also awaken you to your gifts, your purpose, your ministry, and what he's called you to do. And in our job, we want to empower you to live that out, to live and love like Jesus. Not just live a holy life, but live a holy life and love people the way Jesus would love them. And so everything we do here wraps around that kind of statement. But you say, well, what makes you different than other churches? Well, you know, we pray for other churches here. So we love the capital C church, the, the kingdom of God. But there are things that make each church different. Each church has a different purpose, I believe. But what makes us different is there's four distinctives, we call them. Distinctives are just what make us a little bit different. One is we are a word and spirit church. And I'm going to unpack these fully later on this month. But we are a word and spirit church, meaning we believe in the authority and inerrancy and the preaching and teaching of God's word, deep theology, Bible study, teaching. But we also believe in the fullness of the Holy Spirit's presence today and his gifts and his ministry. We believe in the baptism in the Holy Spirit. We believe in all the gifts of the Spirit are for today. And we're trying to bridge those two things together. Two, we are a diverse community. We purposely and intentionally are trying to build a community that is diverse of all different backgrounds, ethnicities, races, and people because we believe in a day of division that shows what it could be like if we keep Jesus at the center. And so that makes us very different than a lot of other churches. We also, we are an empowering church. Our job as the ministry team and as pastors is not to do the ministry, but to equip and prepare you for the ministry. More ministry happens outside the walls of this church than happens inside the walls of the church. And that is our, our cry and our heartbeat, which leads to the fourth one, which is we're missional. We're not an attractional church. You're not going to see us do, you know, a big circus on Sunday morning or some things other churches may do to attract people into the building. Our job is to get you out of the building, to equip you, to develop you, to empower you, to go and to reach your neighbors, reach your coworkers, share the gospel with them, help them get saved, disciple them, and release them to do the exact same thing. Those are our distinctives. And normally, if people don't make it here at chapel, it's because of one of those four distinctives. They just don't fit with those four distinctives. And so we're going to pack those later on. But Isaiah 59 is an interesting scripture. And as I, as I get into it, we're at a day and age, I don't know if you know this, but even with COVID, even before COVID, the world changed very quickly. Like 2022 is not the same as 2012. Life is sped up. The world is sped up. The culture has changed. Culture has transitioned. I was telling RJ on a drive, I don't ever remember seeing so many people fight over politics until the last few years. You think back, just 2008, which was a very volatile election, you didn't see people hate each other over politics. And so the world through social media and through everything is getting smaller, but it gets smaller, it actually gets more divisive. And it's kind of very similar to 1930s and 1940s, right before the World War II. 
One of my favorite authors and preachers is a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Touch your neighbor and say Bonhoeffer. You'll never have to say that word again. I just want to see if you can say it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer was a guy that didn't grow up in church, really. He had some connections to the Roman Catholic Church because there was one in town. And he began to travel as a young man and really fell in love with Jesus, the Scriptures, the Holy Spirit, and the kingdom of God. And he got into ministry, and as he got into ministry in the 1930s, that's when the Nazi movement started to arise. So the Nazi movement was a, a, you know, a, a Nazi nationalist movement, and what they started to do was try to infiltrate the churches in order to get the churches to support the government and nationalism and Nazism. And so what happened was Hitler had this phrase, he wanted to, to have the hearts and souls of every German. And Bonhoeffer knew you can't have the hearts and souls of Christians because Jesus is the king who has the hearts and souls. Yet the government was asking for the hearts and souls of the church people. And so Bonhoeffer created a totally different denomination as he saw the other denominations bowing down to the culture that was surrounding them. Due to the pressures, due to the, the, the culture that was trying to get them to buy in, he pulled back and created a different denomination. And as he pulled back, they started getting persecuted, and they started an underground seminary slash church. And that church, they, they created rhythms. If you ever want to read Bonhoeffer, uh, Cost of Discipleship is an incredible book. Life Together is another amazing book that were, he was writing to his followers during this time. And he created this underground seminary slash church, and in that church, they would wake up and they had daily prayer. He reinstituted daily prayer into the life of the church. First prayer room prayer meeting type format. But they also studied the scriptures together. They did life together. They loved each other. They celebrated together. They went through all this stuff as they were underground because the Nazi government was trying to shut them down and kill them. And people started hearing about this underground seminary church called Finkenwald. Say that to your neighbor, Finkenwald. Now, watch your mouth. That was soap when you go home. Finkenwald. It was a little town on the outskirts of the German border on the Poland side. And from there, you could see from some of the mountaintops, some of the, the Nazi training camps are around them. And so he had a couple of people that came to visit him. One was a theologian. People were thinking, okay, one, Bonhoeffer's too spiritual because he believed in the presence and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But two, he was too radical. Like, why don't you just calm down and, and you just stifle down your radical faith? It's all going to be okay. Just be part of the Lutheran church again. It's going to be okay. And he said, I can't do it. And so this one guy came to meet with Bonhoeffer and said, you just, you're too crazy, you're too radical. And Bonhoeffer put him in a little rowboat, and they began to row across the river. They went to a mountaintop, a little hillside mountaintop. They began to look over at what was a German Nazi training camp. You'll throw that picture up. A German Nazi training camp. And they watched as planes would fly in and land on the runways. And planes would take off the runways and take off. They watched formations of young men and women who are marching in squadrons like little ants moving back and forth. They watched them carrying these flags, which is also known as a beacon or a standard in, in the Hebrew language. And they're watching this over and over again. And Bonhoeffer's just silent. And as they're watching, he's watching an entire generation of people in Germany be transformed, not to the image of Christ, but in the image of Hitler. And he looks at his, his friend who said he was radical and he was too far. He looked at him and he said this. He said, discipleship has to be stronger than cultural formation. He said, this 
must be stronger than that. Now, we may not be in Nazi Germany, but whether you believe it or not, there are transformational cultural centers all around us. Some of them, if you just look at the TV, the media, breaking news. Remember when they just used to share the news? Remember when they would come on, Walter Conkright, he would just share the news. Now they don't share the news. Now they share a perspective, a point of view, or an agenda to get you to conform your worldview or your mindset to what they want you to believe. That is cultural transformation. Education, high schools, colleges are no longer in educational. Now they are transformational. Where now there are training centers for young people, much like Hitler was using, if I can get the youth, I can get a generation. They're not just training our kids to know math and arithmetic. Now they're training them in sexuality and liberality and anti-God doctrines. It's incredible. Like the world gets it. If we get the kids, we get the generation. Muslims in Muslim nations, when babies are born, they'll write the five pillars of Islam on a chalkboard. All five pillars. Then they'll wipe it off. They wring it off and they put it in a baby bottle to feed it to newborn babies so they have five pillars of Islam in them before they ever start talking or walking. Transformational centers for culture. You also have social media. I don't know if you know this or not, but social media uses algorithms to convince you to believe what they put in front of you. They will actually trigger you intentionally because the more angry you are, the longer you stay on social media. And the longer you stay on social media, the more ads you see and the more money they make. Would you realize that everything in our culture Exist and is trying to transform us, this has to be stronger than that. And one of the downsides of the church in the last couple of decades is we are too concerned with attractional ministry that watered down the gospel and watered down commitment and watered down discipleship in order to make everybody feel comfortable to come in, that we lost the power of transformation, and now that which is out there is stronger than that which is in here. And my prayer, my prayer, we, I've been yelling about discipleship for the last seven and a half years. My prayer is that we finally get it, that there's a generation that is watching mommy and daddy and when they see lukewarm faith and lukewarm commitment and lukewarm Christianity, it just makes them twice as cold. My prayer is that as we begin to transform ourselves through discipleship, that we can then transform other people. And what we can see is a movement that changes the community, changes the nation, and changes the generation for the good of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is my prayer. This is the blanket statement for today is this. I want to see, and I believe we're going to see, a thousand spirit-filled, spirit-empowered disciple makers by 2030. People who are trained, developed, discipled. The reason most of us don't disciple other people is because we were never discipled ourselves. We're going to fix that problem. And the one thing you can't do is you can't go into the world without the power of the Holy Spirit. People ask you, do you believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Yes, I don't see how people can preach without the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't see how you can go to CVS without the power of the Spirit. I don't know how you can drive down Cloverdale Road with people turning left into Taco Bell where you're not supposed to turn left without the power of the Holy Spirit. 
I don't know how you can raise teenagers without the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't know how you can stay married without the power of the Holy Spirit. You need the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you're going to make disciples, the one thing Jesus told his disciples to do before they went into all the world, preach the gospel, made disciples, was to wait for the power of the Holy Spirit. And I'm believing and I'm praying for a thousand spirit-filled disciple makers. Because I believe what God does when culture begins to get stirred up, God raises the standard of the church. You'll see this in Isaiah chapter 59. I'm going to be in verse 19. This is a New King James Version because they all translate a couple words differently. But it says this, So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For when the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will rise up or lift up a standard against him. If you would read all of Isaiah 59, it describes our culture today. Verse by verse, he says there's injustice that they're running towards evil instead of running towards righteousness. There's no longer truth. The ways are crooked. He goes through all these different descriptions. There's blood in the streets. There's this. And it would remind you of 2022. And so the prophet Isaiah is declaring this word of all this craziness and culture. Then he gets to the scripture. He says, but when the enemy rises up like a flood, or when he comes in like a flood, I will rise up or lift up a standard against him. And that word for standard is you know, the word standard in general just means a, a authority sets a model or expectation in place. I Meaning this is, this is the marker we need to hit. That's what a standard is. But it also means in the scripture, a standard is like a beacon or a flag. Meaning this is the beacon. This is what you should be looking at if you want to see success. This is what you should be looking at if you want to be victorious. This is what you should be looking at. And so he's saying, when the enemy comes in like a flood, I'm going to raise up or lift up a people that set a new standard. We, we can complain. We can, we can do all different types of things. But the way God works is when God sees the standards decreasing, he raises up a people that bring in a new standard to show the world where it could be different. Now, that's the positive side. The negative side is he says, when the enemy comes in like a flood. You know, there's Bible verses I like. I hate it when God gives you promises that are like this. The enemy is not if he comes, it's when he comes. When the enemy comes. And when he comes, it's not if he comes, but when he comes, when he comes, it's not going to come in like some sprinkles. It's not going to come in like a couple of raindrops. It's not going to come in like, you know, like a, just a cloudy day. It's not just come in like a little wind. It's going to come in like a flood. And I don't know about you, but I've worked some floods. I've been talking to a pastor in East Kentucky who's dealing with floods now. When floods come in, they devastate. And even when the floods subside, it leaves marks of what it did to every house. There'll be water lines inside houses. Houses moved. Houses destroyed. He comes in like a flood. It's like when you go to the beach. And if you got the kids, especially when they're smaller, and the waves start crashing in. Like the kids think they can, they can fight off the waves, so they try to hold up, and the wave just crashes in and pushes them down. When the enemy comes in, it's like those waves crashing in. It beats you around. Sometimes it knocks you down. It's hard to catch your breath. It's hard to see you have water in your eyes. There's so many people right now that the enemy has been flooding their lives that they can't catch their breath. 
whether it's through loss of loved ones or stress and anxiety or kids or job loss or the economy or finance or sickness in their bodies. It's like wave after wave after wave after wave keeps crashing in upon them. And whether you realize it or not, he's been crashing in on our nation, our city, and our community, and our church, and our people for way too long. Like just our nation. He has flooded our nation with division and violence and injustice and racism and oppression. And the reason all that stuff's going on is because no one's raised up a standard against it. You look at our community. Our community is devastated with poverty generational poverty, systemic racism, division. You look at all types of, you look at our schools, they're flooded. They're flooded with isolation and bullying and sexual perversion and all these things kids should never have to worry about. They're flooded at young ages. Look at social media. It was supposed to promise friends. What did it give us? Anxiety, depression, cyberbullying, sleepless nights, flooding our lives with temptation and fear and anxiety. Like he has been working over time. He has been flooding our lives. And the reason that the flood is still coming is because there's not been any group of people. When I say church, I'm not talking about the building. I'm talking about the people of God that say we're going to raise up a new standard. To be honest, we're less like Bonhoeffer or more like his friend. He says, just, 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 die, just stifle it down just a little bit. And so in order to have comfort, we stifle the standard in order to fit to the standard. Like when I was in the Air Force, I would max out my PT. When I stationed Pensacola, Florida, I max out my PT. Can't do that now because I max out donuts. But I used to max out PT. And I got to my next duty station in Washington, D.C., and they changed it. So when I was maxing my PT in Pensacola, you had to run two miles under a certain time. You had to do so many push-ups in two minutes, so many sit-ups in two minutes. I'd max that. I get it out. I get to, to Fort B. Maryland. A toy could tell you this. And they changed it. No longer do you have to run the two miles and do the push-ups, sit-ups. They said, we have new science. And I'm about tired of new science. I want old science. <laughs> they said, here's our new science. They put you on a, a stationary bicycle. They put some meters on you that measure your pulse and your heart rate and your O2 and all this stuff. And they said, you have to ride the bike for so long. We got to get your heart rate to a certain level. And then we'll get you off the bike and see how fast your heart rate drops back down. I maxed my PT out. My best friend maxed his PT out. We failed every single one of those stupid bicycle tests. But yet a guy I worked with who was always overweight in the Air Force on waivers, he'd get on that stupid bicycle and he'd max out his PT scores. And so what I'm saying is this, many times in order to let other people have influence, we lower the standards of the kingdom. And the kingdom is about lowering the standards, it's about raising the standards so those who are called will rise up to the level of the standards to become influencers in the kingdom. The church cannot be diluted by culture, the church must dilute the culture with the kingdom of heaven. And that's where we are at, because God's solution... I don't know why he picked this, that God's, God's weapon of choice in culture wars, in, in, in conflict, is not a new political candidate, it's not new legislation, it's not, you know, the crusades. God's weapon of choice is raising the standards of the church. Every time, like you can go through church history, every time, the way God counterreacts culture, when it looks like culture's flooding in, the way God counterreacts that is by raising up a new standard of the church. Church, I don't 
know why, but I think it's to show them that there's something different, something to be spotted, because I know the enemy, the enemy of all things he hates, he hates a standard. He hates a standard. Satan hates a standard. He said, how do you, how does that work? And I said, I don't know exactly all the details, but I do know this, that the enemy hates a standard because once there's a standard, it exposes everything that's fake. Once there's a standard, even in the Garden of Eden, when he said Jesus will come and smash the head of the serpent, he was already angry because he's saying there's a new standard that's going to come. Not a standard of knowledge of good and evil, but a standard of grace and love and truth and holiness. When he brings the people out of Egypt, the first thing he gives the Hebrew people in a new land, they were surrounded by outside pagan culture. The first thing he gave them was the law, which was a new standard for his people. The enemy hates a standard because it exposes all his deception, lies, his false gospels, and his fakeness, and all the things he tries to tell us that are true. They become false when there's a new standard. It's like counterfeit money, which... You know, I'd seen this a couple years ago that in Kentucky, a guy literally walked into a convenience store and tried to pay with a $200 bill. In case you don't know, they don't make $200 bills, but it had George Bush's face on it. I, I mean, I, he may be legendary to you, but I didn't know they were putting him on a $200 bill. As he walked in, but if you know what the standard is, you can spot the fake immediately. And so the Secret Service, when they're training to spot counterfeit, they don't play with, with fake money. They play with real money. They feel it, they taste it, they smell it, they crumple it up, they run. They, they get so associated, so acquainted with the standard that anything that doesn't meet the standard gets tossed out immediately. And I believe we're in a day and age where God is saying, listen, I, I let you guys do what you wanted to do. You try to create your own standards, and it ain't working. And he said, I'm going to call you up to a new standard. I'm going to call you out. I believe what God is saying to the Capital C Church is he's calling us up and out to a new holy standard. See what Gideon, first thing, God finds Gideon, Judges chapter 6, finds Gideon in a hole in the ground. Why is he in a hole in the ground? Because the culture had gotten so dominant that he couldn't even make a loaf of bread and eat. Every time they thought they'd take a step forward, they were taking two steps backwards. The culture around the Jewish people was so dominant that he was hiding in a hole in the ground. God finds him in that hole in the ground. God doesn't tell him, you know, we, we need to find another politician to elect. We need another judge to put in. We need another legislation. No, he says, get in, get up, you mighty man of God. God's weapon of choice is raising up people, calling them up out of culture, and then sending them back in to influence culture, to then take the kingdom of heaven with them everywhere they go. I believe personally that that's what God is trying to do. I believe he's trying to call you up and call you out. I believe he's trying to call leaders up and out, teachers up and out, business people up and out. I believe he's trying to call the church up and out, up out of lukewarm, biblical, Bible belt, traditional Christianity into a revival-based, powerful discipleship movement. See, because when culture declines into sin, violence, and sexual perversion and unrighteousness, God raises the standard for his church. As the culture wars have progressed, there is greater division and polarization in our community and our nation than ever, ever before. With all the fighting, we have seen the failure of the church. 
In one way, the church has conformed to the culture in order to reach the culture. The seeker movement sought to lower the standards of God's church in order to reach the culture with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But this has done nothing more than lower the standard of the church of Jesus Christ. Now, the other side has done nothing more than than try to fight culture wars and battles and try to engage in cultural conflicts. And this is taking the church's hand off the plow of advancing the gospel of the kingdom in order to fight earthly battles of a temporary nation. We've exchanged the power of God for the power of the ballot box. We've exchanged the truth for cultural relevancy. We've exchanged transformational love of Jesus Christ for cultural affirmation and appeasement. We've exchanged the presence of God for temporary 15 minutes of secular Christian entertainment on Sunday mornings. We've exchanged the word of God for self-help, self-care, humanistic, inspirational talks. We've exchanged evangelism for public relations for God's church. We exchange the gospel of the kingdom for American consumerism. We exchange the Holy Spirit for social acceptance. We exchange repentance for cheap counterfeit grace. And God is not looking for a church to make exchanges. God is looking for a church not to win cultural arguments. He's looking for a church that raises the standard so the culture can see what heaven is going to look like. Make no mistake about it. We are no longer in a debate. The debates are over. The debates were in the 70s and 80s. We're no longer in a debate. We are now in a beauty pageant. He is calling the church to paint a better picture of what it looks like serving Jesus than it does serving man. The culture is trying to paint a picture of what it thinks heaven on earth will look like through liberalism and sexuality and individual freedom and nationalism and all the isms that are out there. But we know what heaven on earth looks like, and it is time that the church stands up and shows it. Now is not the time for conformity, but for contrast. It is time to see the juxtaposition of light and darkness, holy and unholy, love and hate, the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of the world. We will raise the standard for us as chapel. We will be the New Testament church. We will be the light in the darkness. We will pursue holiness and a culture of sin. We will be passionate in an apathetic culture. We will have authentic love in a culture of hate. We will be the united church in a culture of division. We will be devoted in a culture of lukewarm Christianity. We will be selfless in a culture of selfishness. We will be gracious in the midst of cancel culture. And we will be the church of Jesus Christ and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it we are the standard we are the standard you are the standard i am the standard and and i said the debates are over like like the debates are the debates on whether jesus is real jesus is not real debates the all the debates are people don't care what we believe they want to see it and we're now in a beauty pageant where the world is looking at you not just the brand of the church, not just whatever the logo is. They're looking at you to see if the life you live is more beautiful than the life they're promised on TV and social media. When you think about it, every, every ism that's out there, we could name a ton of every ism, all they're doing is promising what they think utopia will be like. And utopia is nothing more than their form of heaven on earth. 
whether that's the far right is promising we can go back and, and create all these traditions and this is heaven on earth, or the super progressives and liberals saying just individual freedom. You can do what you want to do. That is heaven on earth. Whatever the movement may be, they're saying this is what heaven on earth looks like. And Jesus told us, he told us the church should be a foretaste of heaven. The beauty of the church, the grace of the church, the love of the church. And he's calling us to rise up and be that church. Which means we are the standard. Look at your neighbor and say, you're the standard. When you go to work tomorrow, they're going to be looking at you. You are the standard. When you go to school, you are the standard. When you drive to the restaurant you go to, you are the standard. Like we're not in a debate anymore. People want to see what the church really is. People have this messed up mentality that they think the church is one way. Even if it's not, and it's our job not to convince them other, but to simply show them through the life I live. Through the, you know, I said this back in the, the whole gay marriage debate. I'm like, we're so concerned with how, about who's getting married, who's not getting married. We're not even taking care of our own marriages. We're so concerned with what's going on out there. We're not taking care. If we just do what God has called us to do, it becomes this movement that impacts everything around us. And so today I just want to give you kind of the five purposes of chapel. And this is my challenge, that in each and every area, you raise your personal standard up just a little bit. Just, just a little bit. I'm not saying you become Bonhoeffer, but I'm saying you realize this isn't about me or you. This is about us. It's about us. When people see us, what do they see? When people see chapel, what do they see? And so there's five purposes. Rick Warren teaches this. There's five purposes. He gets it from throughout the Bible, the Great Commission, the Great Commandment. He gets it from Acts chapter 2. He gets it from John 17, Ephesians 4. It's throughout the Bible. And he says these five things, worship, ministry, evangelism, fellowship, and discipleship. In a chapel, we do all five of those. We don't say them in those exact words. But the first thing I, I want to see us, and I believe God is calling us to do, is to honor God. It's in our mission statement. We want to honor God, not know God, not just know who he is. We want to honor him with our mouths, with our lives, with what we do, how we serve. We want to honor God. And so we want to be a praying church. I'm talking about a praying church. Not a church that prays, but a praying church church. And I believe one of the things that's been missing in the church growth movement is we've got great music, we've got great preaching, we've got great small groups, but we don't pray. And I think it's because prayer is the work. Prayer is not how you, how you get what you want. Prayer is the actual work. Prayer is what we get. That's the sitting. In Acts chapter 1, it says this, and they were with one accord and were devoting themselves to prayer. 1 Timothy 2, 1, 3. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. John Wesley, my favorite quote, says, God does nothing but in response to prayer. God does nothing but in response to prayer. If that quote is true, then heaven is waiting on us to actually ask so it can respond. 
Maybe in your marriage, if God does nothing but by prayer, maybe it's time you pray for your marriage. Maybe for your kids, it's time to pray. Maybe for culture, instead of posting comments on Facebook, maybe it's time to pray. See, I believe God is calling all churches to become praying churches. That's why our midweek is coming back as a prayer meeting. We are going to intercede for each other, for our church, for our community, for our nation, for other churches. Why? It is that important. It is that vital. Not just as prayer is the, is the heartbeat of a church. It's not a ministry of the church. It's the heartbeat. It's what pumps life and pumps blood into the worship, into the preaching, into the kids' ministry, into the first impression, into the life of the people. It is the heartbeat. And if the heart isn't healthy, nothing's healthy. And so I'm challenging you that when we go back in September, that you say, I'm going I'm to be a prayer. For one hour a week, I'm going to seek God's face and intercede and begin to pray like I've never prayed before. We're going to help you. We're going to model it. We're going to teach it. But we want to be a praying church. But number two is building community, meaning get connected to the church. And this is my challenge. Raise the standard from attending to belonging. There's one thing to attend on Sunday morning. It's a whole other thing to belong to the body of chapel or to any church. This isn't your church. I'd rather you not attend any church. I want you to belong to a church. It says this in Ephesians 4.15, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The church is not the preaching. It's not even the worship. It's the connections. And I wish... I was talking to a young man about this. I wish preaching could change. I've been preaching long enough. I realize preaching doesn't change anything. What changes people's lives is the connections they make in the body. You may be inspired. You may, you may like the preaching. You may like the music. But how you receive the blessings of the kingdom of heaven is through the connections you make. The more connections you make, the more blessings you receive. The more connections you make, the more life flows in those joints. As he talks about the joints, if the joint's not connected, there's no blood flow. But once it's connected, there's blood flow there. And some of you, I wish you could get this revelation. Because you come to church, you worship, you hear the preaching, but nothing's changing. And the reason nothing changes is because you're not connected. And you're not going to get the life-giving blood until you find that connection. So I want to challenge you. We're going to unpack how to do this from attending to belonging. Number three is to begin to serve together, to serving the ministry side. And the challenge is that you become a contributor instead of just a consumer. Consumers receive, contributors put back out, they give back. Consumers just take in, but contributors pour back out. Contributors are poured into, or consumers are poured into, but contributors pour back out. First Peter 4.10 says, as each has received a gift. Touch your neighbor and say, you've got a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. For whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Every single one of you in this room have a gift. And this scripture doesn't talk about using your gifts outside. It talks about using your gifts inside the church, inside the people's lives. And God has given you your gift. It says when you use it, God receives glory for it. 
which means the opposite is true. If you're not using your gift to serve other people, he's not receiving the glory for your life the way he wants to. And, and I will say this, that I've told Toya, I was like, I want to retire from preaching early. I just want to be an usher. And I changed my, I want to be in chapel, kids or in kids' ministry, because I love walking in kids. Back, they love you. They don't know what you're talking about. They don't know what you're saying. They just love adults because you're bigger. You're like a giant when you walk back there. I want to be the jolly green giant when I retire. That's my goal. But like every Sunday when I'm driving to church, I think about when we first, I first got saved, started going to church. I was an usher. I loved ushering. I love seeing people walk in the door. I love seeing new people come. I love serving people. And then I got to teach discipleship. I love getting with new believers and following with them and teaching them and trying to get them founded in God's word. Like I just love serving. And there's something happens that when you serve, I feel like God serves you. Like would you pour out, as we were singing earlier, as you pour out, like you pour out your alabaster box, I believe God pours back into you. And some of you, you've gotten stagnant because there's no flow. And, and so I want to challenge you to move from being a consumer of ministry to contributor to ministry. Whether that's, you know, whatever team, our media team, which helps us get the word of God all over the nation and world. We have people that join us all over the world, expanding our influence. Whether it's chapel kids or ushers or greeters or the coffee team that brews liquid Holy Ghost every Sunday. Like, you don't understand how, you say, why do we do coffee? Not so that you'll wake up. It's because it gives people a chance to connect before and after church, to have conversations and to make friends. I'm challenging you to move from a consumer to a contributor. But also, the big one, make disciples. Make disciples to move from a believer to a disciple. I don't know if you know this, but even the devil believes in Jesus. The Great Commission doesn't say, go in all the world and get people to believe in me. It doesn't say, you know, show up and have church on Sunday. No, it says go into all the world and make disciples. There's a difference between believing in Jesus and following Jesus. And if we were honest, many of us are just Bible Belt traditional believers of Jesus. We believe in him and we want him to follow us wherever we go. But when you follow Jesus, you follow him wherever he goes. And there's a major difference. And I want to challenge you. Well, what is a follower of Jesus? It's somebody they're not concerned with where they're going. They're only concerned with where he's going. It's somebody that lets him mind, body, and spirit. Let's him conform you, your beliefs, your character, your gifts, and your life into what he wants. I heard Dallas Willard say it like this. Being a disciple is being who Jesus would be if he was you. If Jesus was you at your work, what would he be doing? If Jesus was you at your school, what would he be doing? If Jesus was you in your home, what would he be doing? Discipleship is nothing more than becoming who Jesus would be if he was you. And we're going to have a thousand spirit-filled disciple makers by 2030. You're going to hear this a lot. And we, Pastor Anthony's going to unpack this. We're going to unpack this, how to get there, how to be trained, how to be released. But I'm believing that if we can get a thousand spirit-filled disciple makers outside the walls of this church, we'll see the community transformed. And last but not least, impact lies, which for us here is our missions and outreach. This is, I would say this, I want to challenge you to move from being a Sunday morning Christian to a 24-7 Christian. That you look at where God takes you throughout the week. God is taking you there on purpose, and he's taking you there on mission. That whether it's outreach and missions here, that's a training ground, that's Shoals Dream Center or mission trips we're going to share 
that are coming up next year that we're going many different places plus Haiti again. We've got tons of stuff going on. But the goal is that you realize your job is not to sit on a pew on Sunday morning. It's to carry the kingdom and the gospel with you wherever you go. And I believe as we do, I, I, my prayer is this church becomes a Finkenwald. It's a training center to train disciples that can survive the culture that's against us and begin to influence the culture as dandelions. You ever seen a dandelion that blows in the wind and goes everywhere? That's my prayer for this church. Is as the winds of the Holy Spirit blow across us, he sends us all out in the community and begin to plant more dandelions or more disciples wherever we may land. That is my prayer. And I'm telling you, our culture needs it. You, you may think it's culture wars. I know it's a spiritual attack. The younger generation needs us. Do you know how hard it is to be a teenager these days? You thought it was hard when we were teenagers. If you got a pimple when I was in high school, that was bad enough. But now it's all over social media. Now it's not just your 30 classmates. It's everybody sees it. But then you have people bullying you, isolating you, testing your beliefs, and sowing discord between you and your parents. It's hard to be an adult these days with all the stress and chaos around us, it's going to take stronger disciples than ever before. And this church is going to be a standard-bearing church, a beacon in the dark that shows the world what heaven could look like here on earth. That is my prayer for you. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to unpack this what it means to be a disciple, how we're going to make disciples here. We've got ministry updates for every ministry. We're going to share, all the staff are going to share where we're going and what we're doing and how you can be involved and connected with what God is doing here. But if you would, I just want you to bow your heads and close your eyes just for a second. It's not going to take but just a second. If I can get the prayer team, go ahead and come up as well. Say you're in this room and you've come to church this morning and your Holy Spirit has been working on you and maybe pointing out some things in your life. But maybe he's, he's trying to call you to himself. And that may seem like maybe you feel guilty or ashamed of some sin in your life. That may be God calling you to Jesus. Maybe for you, maybe it's you, your past is catching up with you, your decisions are catching up with you, and you need a new, fresh start. Maybe for some of you, it's you're just tired and weary. You need Jesus to pick you up because his burden is light. And you said, you know what? I need today to be my fresh start, a new beginning with Jesus. We call that the gospel. That you give Jesus your junk, the repentance. You repent and you return your junk to him. And back he gives you a new life, a new purpose, and a new hope, and a new beginning. I'm not going to have you stand up or come forward, but if you said, that's me. So I want you to slip your hand up real quick. So that's me. I want, to, I want that fresh start with Jesus today. Thank you. Anybody else? Wait just a second. Anybody else say, that's me. Holy Spirit's been working on me this morning. I just want to say yes to Jesus. I want to pray. But when I'm done praying, when we dismiss, if you would just do us a favor and swing by Connection Point, let them give you a gift and say, we're with you. We're walking beside you. We're for you. We want to help you because salvation is the beginning, not the end. Father, in Jesus' name, we bless you in this place. And I thank you for this church, this incredible church full of great people, incredible people, loving people, gracious people. Father, I pray that you stir our hearts to raise the standard and the beauty of your church. To move from just attending to belonging, 
to move from just consuming to contributing, to move from just believing to following you and being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for all the people that raise their hands. I just pray right now, Holy Spirit, that you seal this moment as they confess, as they repent. I pray that you give them new life in you. I pray that the next few days are days of joy and hope and promise in your voice, speaking things directly into their souls. And Father, we just thank you for this day that you've given us. We bless you in Jesus' name and all God's people said.